You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thanks for gathering us together on this beautiful Lord's Day. Please guide uh, this day in your presence. Help us now as we open your word to revelation that you would speak to us by your spirit. Thank you for each one here. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. Revelation chapter 10 uh, and its 11 verses are our subject for today. The message in the in the nave this morning from Luke chapter uh, 21 fits perfectly with the theme of our short passage in Revelation today, witness. At the center in verse 13 in the text many of us have just come from in worship, it says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And it is this, uh, the witness uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what I have entitled uh, Revelation 10, 1 through 11. Let me just very uh, repeat very quickly something of uh, the thesis and the theme of the book of Revelation uh, for us. Chapter 1 begins with an introduction by John of being appointed by the Spirit of God to bear witness to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, of things that must soon take place which uh, Andrew just gave us a good distinction between the end times and the last days with his explanation that the last days cover from the resurrection and ascension to the second coming of Christ. And Revelation covers that particular period of time with an emphasis on taking that spectrum of days, the whole gospel age of witness, all the way to the end and then describing something of the intensity of the end. Remember, we have said that there are seven descriptions of the end in the book of Revelation. So rather than listening to the book as a a linear chronological pace, we see the spiraling effect. And you're uh, you're always close to either worship or judgment, and that's the spiraling intensity of the book, worship and judgment, worship and judgment. So you're sort of on earth experiencing the wrath of God that is expended to drive people to himself and to come to terms with receiving the mercy of God, which is strongly resisted. And then in the next scene, you're in heaven with all-out doxological worship and praise. And it's that spiraling effect. In chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation, we have the seven churches and the letters to, uh, in some ways, contextual and timeless, speaking into the church age, which is from resurrection to the second coming of Christ. In 4 and 5, we have a throne of Christ, throne of God, this worship scene with five hymns from chapters 4 and 5. In 6, we have the release of four seals. It's a volume of which the seals are broken. We are yet to wait for the message of the consummation of the end of the age, but those seals, the first 
Seals are the four horses of the apocalypse, which is a description of evil as we experience it today. In chapter 7, we have the sealing of the last generation of believers and a description of the great multitude in heaven praising God. So 6 and 7 hang together, just like 4 and 5 hung together on the throne. And then in chapters 8 and 9, which we talked about last week, we have the seven trumpets. And again, a more intensification on display of God's wrath, which is meant by design to drive people to himself. And now we are in chapters 10. Notice the uh, conclusion of chapter 9. If you've got your Bible open, let me just read that to set the context for 10. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Chapter 9 concludes then with a description the second time over of a kind of cataclysmic, catastrophic, total global judgment. And yet people still refuse to respond to the mercy of God. They respond to the wrath of God by doing almost everything else but responding to the mercy of God. So that brings us to chapter 10. And now from earth in chapter 9, we go to heaven. Uh, and heaven coming down to bear witness to John. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, I'll read these words. Listen carefully, this is God's word. It's on your study guide. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And he's robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open on his hand, in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Those seven thunders are in parallel to the seven seals and then the seven trumpets, and now these seven thunders. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. In other words, this isn't going to become part of the drama. The seven thunders, no, that's a step too far. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders that are not now allowed to extend this period of time. And then there'll be the seven bowls, all an intensification of the wrath of God in order to lead people to himself. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, 
the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once again. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, language, and kings. By the way, those four descriptive contextual ideas of people that are going to hear this message, peoples, nations, languages, and kings, that's repeated seven times in the book of Revelation, always with a different order. So you have a picture of a mighty angel coming down. And that angel is described in such a way as to draw our attention back to Old Testament scripture. Daniel's uh, robed son of man coming, Ezekiel's son of man coming with a cloud, makes us think of this uh, angel who is coming, robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head and his face shining like the sun, reminds us of believers, reminds believers of how they are to be in the world but not of the world. So you have a picture of a mighty angel bearing witness that is a description of kind of the power of God brought to bear there's actually two pictures here. There's John taking that little scroll from the mighty angel's hand. And so you've got heaven's might and, in a way, human vulnerability. We're meant to see a comparison here between the mighty angel who has possession of the revelation of God and John who takes up that revelation in all of his weakness, in all of his humanity, in all of his frailty, you have that picture that is going to bear witness to uh, the gospel. Number two on your study guide, the earth is ravaged and the wrath of God is released against unrepentant, godless, self-worshipping idolaters, yet evil and judgment are never the last word. Nor is evil ever the whole picture. Before heaven proclaims the kingdom of this world, it has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Earth receives Christ's final witness. Between orchestrated judgments and the Hallelujah Chorus, the mission of the church is described. So who does John represent taking this little scroll? He represents the church, the body of Christ, bearing witness to the gospel. That's why it ties in so well with this morning's message where it says in that Luke passage, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And as, jo as Luke describes uh, these, uh, this end time sequence from resurrection to the Lord's coming, this is the, opportunity time, this is the opportune time for the church to bear witness. This is the age of witness. Number three on your study guide, salvation and judgment await. In the meantime, the church is called to love as Christ loves the world. 
They regard no one from a worldly point of view because they have been given the message of reconciliation and appointed as Christ's ambassadors. Number four, the followers of the Lamb live in anticipation of the fullness of life promised in Christ. Everlasting life has already begun. The abundant life is now. Jesus is described as the faithful witness in chapter 1, and those who follow him bear witness to his gospel. The church finds in Antipas, in the second chapter he's referred to, the only named disciple in the book of Revelation. She finds her true identity. He is the witness to the gospel. Some things in the book of Revelation actually boil down to something very simple. And it's a description of the church that bears witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John is the representative of that witness, of our witness, of our opportunity and responsibility to witness. Number six, I think, is important, a description of the mighty angel. In John's one-act drama, the witness of the church reaches its high point. There is a positive tension between the heavenly authority of the mighty angel and the earthly vulnerability of the witnessing church. The prophet Daniel describes one like a son of man coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven. Ezekiel envisioned a figure like that of a man surrounded by a brilliant rainbow in the clouds. His face shining like the sun causes us to think of John's opening vision of one like a son of man. His legs are like fiery pillars, recalling the Lord's guidance of the people of Israel in the wilderness. All the descriptive features of this mighty angel remind us of God himself and Christ in particular. But John stops short of drawing out this identification. So the witness of John depends upon and is related to this mighty angel. And the way the mighty angel is described recalls everything from Noah's rainbow to the pillars of fire that guided the Israelites in the wilderness. All of this imagery comes is already there in Scripture. And John is just using it, drawing it in his praying imagination to speak of really the impenetrable power of the truth of God, that that will not be lost even in the vulnerability of John and the church's witness. Number seven, a voice from heaven silences the seven thunders to indicate that another series of plagues is unnecessary. The purpose of divine judgment to lead sinners to repentance has been met with, the res with resistance every step of the way. Number eight, if you turn the page, the mighty angel takes an oath reminiscent of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel envisioned the man clothed with linen who was above the waters of the river, lifting his right hand and left hand toward heaven, swearing by him who lives forever and saying, Daniel's saying or quoting, it will be for a time, times and a half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. All these things will be completed. So Daniel envisions what the book of Revelation also addresses, the contrast between heavenly authority and human weakness set in juxtaposition. Now this little scroll, remember in chapter earlier when, Jesus, when John wept, when he uh, approaches the throne of God and 
there is an, uh, a, a scroll that no one can open. And remember, he turns and he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and he sees one slain, a lamb, as if it was slain. And he's the one who can open the scroll. He can bring history to its consummation. He can bring the, the, uh, all that God has promised in terms of salvation and judgment to its final end. The question then is, what's the relationship of this scroll in chapter 5 to the scroll in chapter 10? It's a smaller version, and I would suggest to you that it is, uh, it's the gospel in the midst of all of this truth about what will be in terms of salvation and judgment the little scroll that John has possession of now that he's taken and he's going to eat, that little scroll is the gospel. That little scroll is the witness that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Number nine, the little scroll in the hands of the mighty angel is distinguished only in size from the scroll opened by the Lamb in chapter 5. The scrolls may not be identical, but they share a similar meaning. Both scrolls are symbolic of God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection. And both scrolls concern the destiny of peoples, nations, tongues, and tribes and kings. And John's told to take it and to eat it. There's two prophets that this was also told to, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah were told to consume the word of God. And that's where I think, mentally anyways, I want to pause. Um, because there's such a difference in the life of a believer whose relationship to the word of God is somewhat tangential. It's there. It's there and it exists, and it's kind of known, versus the believer who actually consumes the Word of God, uh, metabolizes that Word into the reality, to the fiber of one's life. It is the source of energy. It's the source of wisdom. Andrew said fairly uh, directly this morning that Jesus Christ is really the all in all. It's the one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. It's that uh, singular passion and priority and substance of one's life. Uh, that doesn't mean that one isn't given to all the aspects that we are called to do in one's life, but this is the center. Christ the center. And uh, the Revelation is a great book for underscoring that truth. But John is told to eat this book so that it really becomes part of him. Uh, and I, it's just good to sort of uh, sit on that particular point. Um, this may not be fair at all, uh, so it's totally personal and opinionated. You got that? But I think your physical Bible should actually show and probably is evident 
of whether or not you are eating the Bible, your physical Bible. Uh, have you worn a Bible out? I have about five Bibles from my mother, and they're all kind of worn out. They're, uh, yeah, the, you know, the pages uh, are often marked, and uh, in some places, kind of, uh, they've been re- they've been read a lot. Uh, I, I'm not. Uh, there's nothing absolutely sacred about the pages. I don't mean to imply that, but your Bible really should mean quite a bit to you because you're in it all the time. Uh, my Bible, it, when I pastored First Press. Presbyterian Church in, in San Diego, I could find almost uh, on every page of the Bible where I was at. I could open the page and I kind of I kind of knew it. Uh, and I, had, I placed my Bible like about as close as here one Sunday greeting people as they left the church and somebody took it. I was pretty clear that it was my Bible and it was close to me. And uh, we had, uh, it ended up, well, so some lady said, I'll pray that you get your Bible back. And I didn't verbalize, but uh, I, th- I kind of thought to myself, oh, don't waste your time. You know, that Bible's gone. Well, sure enough, the next week, we got a call from the Park Service in San Diego that my Bible was found in Balboa Park in a plastic bag under a bush. Um, and the Park Service returned it to the church. I got my Bible back. Uh, a year later, my car was broken into and my Bible was stolen and I, I, I lost that Bible. Uh, but... Uh, I don't think it should be just because I'm a pastor that, and I don't really think it is because I'm a pastor that my Bible means something to me. I'm extending this point because I really love it when Episcopalians are into the Bible and they know their Bible and uh, they memorize it, they mark it, they deal with it. Please don't interpret this as any kind of new legalism. Um, I'm just thinking that uh, John's a great example to us of being told to eat it. Eat it. Consume it. Let it be a part of you. Um, We will be richer. All of us will. Uh, Number 12, uh, have we given up? Have we given up on a close and careful, life-shaping reading of the biblical text? Perhaps it has never been easy to ingest the Word of God, trained in capacity to think and communicate on anything other than the shallow level of small talk, soundbite snippets, and instant messaging has been acquired over time with remarkable ingenuity. I, you know, we could go off now and talk about how difficult it is in our age to really do this, to eat the word. Um, 
and how much it has affected our attention span in terms of openness and receptivity to kind of real thinking when it comes to the Word of God. That's one reason why I enjoy preaching at the Advent because it's contextualized in such a way as something serious is about to happen when the person gets up to preach the Word of God. Something serious is about to happen and listen up. And I think in a lot of places where I speak, you know, not at the Advent, I feel like I'm having to bring in those first few minutes a, um, a context that allows for a serious hearing of the Word of God. In some places, it's just really difficult to pull that off. But I think at the Advent, there is a sense in which something, whether in the 11, whatever service you're at, I think there's a sense that, listen up, this is God's Word. And it's not just man's opinion. Uh, it's not good advice, as we say so often, but it's good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Number 13, a sour stomach. Well, that doesn't mean it's an easy message. It's a wonderful message. It's good news. It's a powerful message. But John's going to find out that it's also a difficult message. John's vision relates to Ezekiel's prophecy in three ways. It's just, I think it's important for understanding the book of Revelation that it's not something that's just coming at us new. It's coming at us in the tradition of God's word, this canonical shape, canon being all 66 books. First, we have noted the connection to the vision of the mighty angel. That's one way that it's connected to Ezekiel. Second, there's a direct parallel to the invitation to eat the scroll. Ezekiel was told to eat the word. Third, Ezekiel's description of the eschatological temple of God, which will come in chapter 11 in John, corresponds with John's calling to measure the temple. John saw the prophet Ezekiel as the epitome of the God-hardened communicator. The apostle John compares the witness of the church to the witness of Ezekiel. The message of God's sovereign will and redemptive love is sweet, but this sweet gospel meets with bitter resistance. So the sour stomach is a way figuratively of talking about how the gospel and the truth of God's word is not necessarily readily received by our culture, but actually we experience pushback and resistance. In some ways we could talk about uh, the church and how it has struggled, um, especially the mainline church, and how it has struggled with remaining faithful to God's word and to classical orthodoxy, to the reformed under faith, to a, a, an appreciation for the word of God. Number 14, N.T. Wright underscores the humility and the freedom that grounds the believer's faithful witness. I just like this quote. Once we are clear about our own role as bit players in God's great drama, I like that. We're just bit players in God's great drama. Important, life-giving, purposeful, great meaning. But it's not on us. It's not on us. We're not pulling something off here. 
We're just part of that drama, and thank, thank God we are. We're free in a way that we might not have been if we were still struggling to think of ourselves as moral heroes in the making, to see what an astonishing vocation we actually have, and hence to reflect on how that works out in the present time. Uh, you and I are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one in charge. We're not. But it's wonderful to be a part of what he is doing. Number 15, the divine imperative to witness moves in the opposite direction of social theory. Uh, this would be interesting to explore uh, uh, James Davison Hunter teaches sociology at the University of Virginia and has been a real perceptive, I think, Christian thinker uh, on political theory and social theory. And he would argue that the way of the gospel does not fit with the way of human ideologies and human power structures, the principalities and powers that scripture refers to. Uh, the world cannot help the church deliver the gospel. Got that? The world cannot help the church deliver the gospel. And thus, I think it's wrong for the church to look to the world for the respect that the world really can't give it. Um, uh, and this, uh, you know, this is part of the painful transition that we are going through in our culture, moving from a Christendom understanding where it seemed like Christianity was very much a part of American culture to a position today where we're resident aliens, um, we're chosen exiles. Uh, America is not our home. The Church of Jesus Christ is our home. And we're moving from that Christendom model to a countercultural first century understanding of what it is to live in a culture. And this is the painful transition. Uh, and I don't know who's understanding this better. You and our age group or younger people? Uh, uh, that would be an interesting sort of uh, study. Uh, who's getting the message that Christendom is no longer our home? And instead, it is a countercultural, resident alien, household of faith that stands against the prevailing ideologies of the country, of the world, with a singular message that is unattractive to much of the world but we see as great news, good news, saving news. The world cannot help the church deliver the gospel because everything the world stands for counters and contradicts the gospel. Now, you could take apart that sentence uh, because, uh, and maybe that is said too extremely, because everything the world stands for, there are good values in the world that we can use, I think, to leverage the gospel. For example, uh, equality and justice for all. 
is something that's highly important in the world today in many circles. I think Christians can really leverage and work with that. In fact, we would probably make the point that the idea, the principle of justice for all and equality is something that is inherently Christian. And therefore, we would leverage that truth in order to uh, speak of the gospel. But on the other hand, you know, if the world is saying that uh, all sexuality is approved and understood if it's by consenting adults, that that's fine because you're in charge. Um, and if you're in agreement and the person you're having sex with is consenting, then it's fine. Well, there's a, a value structure in the world that the church would not find uh, or support as positive. If we deliver a generic gospel, uh, we're all God's children, we're all made in his image, uh, no one specifically particularly needs salvation, and uh, there will be no judgment that one uh, is confronted with. We deliver a generic gospel of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Then the world can embrace that. The world can say yes to that. If we're pushing a God and country gospel, uh, people can say yes to that. If we're pushing a prosperity gospel or a felt need gospel, then the world can endorse it. But when you're pushing the Lordship of Jesus Christ and Christ crucified, you're pushing a gospel that really doesn't have any leverage on Wall Street or Hollywood. The gospel is not authoritative speech at Harvard or Stanford. It has no, I should say, no political clout or entertainment value. The gospel that says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord is not acceptable in a court of law or in the public press. So on all those counts, we sort of we give a witness that's really good news. But as uh, the description in chapter 10 implies, it hits our stomach and it's, it's a hard, bitter, not worldly acceptable message that we are called to bear witness to for the sake of the world, for the sake of Christ's love for the world. Well, we're going to be saved by the bell any minute. Uh, any closing thoughts that you have? Yes? When it comes to the world, if you watch your television commercials very carefully, you will find they will put in Christian principles to sell their products. Oh. They don't say it that way, but it unfolds that way. Okay. I mean, as we're speaking. Um, it, it occurred to me that um, the scroll being bitter in your stomach is absolutely true, everything you said, but wouldn't it also be true because in receiving the gospel we're asked to give up the right to ourselves? And that doesn't come easily. That's a good point. Robin's making a good point that for our own reception of the Word of God and submitting to it, living under it, that can cause its own sort of heartburn. Because it runs against our own selfish tendencies, not only the world, but our own. It's like when they all ran away after Jesus drove the appeal uh, the demoniac. It's like, what's he going to ask me to do? Right. Um, and yeah. then my other thought was just.
just the prayer we had this morning, that Bishop Cranmer also asks us to um, inwardly digest. Uh-huh. So, which mm-hmm. I'm sure he pulled right out here. Right. May the God of hope. Oh. Well, I, I think it's, it goes stri- straight to the argument of free will. Um, I, I forget it, what the heart desires, the mind chooses, and how, how's it go, Robin? I forget it. The heart will. desires, the mind chooses, and the will. I mean, the will chooses, and, and the, the will mind justifies. Exactly, and that's why the world can't give it to us. That's why the world can't give it to us, and that that statement also is helpful as a description of what it means to eat the word. It has to really be taken in, so it changes heart and will and life itself. And the mind goes trotting along behind. And the mind. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy, and as we put our trust in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.